We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for joining us on another day at Let's Go There. Um, so Cher wanted to start off before we press record. She wanted to like acknowledge that she sees my tweets about her. And I think if I'm obviously tweeting about her, then obviously I want everyone, including her, to see said tweets. And I did tweet about her today uh-huh. because we had a disagreement about getting the gorilla girl on. I am not for it, but Cher wants it. You know what? News is news, and she's viral and culturally relevant. And I think that might as well. Like, we need to be folks who cover those stories. And you say you're a cultural commentator. I mean, I made my comments on it, and this is a nuanced one where Shira doesn't doesn't understand why the girl stupidly grabbed the glue. But we're not going to talk about that right now because we're we're. I just wanted to let her know that I saw her tweet about me. And she saw the tweet that I tweeted about her, and it is what it is. You know things have gotten really dysfunctional when you're with someone all day long on Zoom, and then you're also tweeting about them, and then you're seeing each other's tweets and talking to each other on Twitter, text, and Zoom, all at the same time, and simultaneously. I've only been shady when we were in arguments, but re- most oh, of my yes. tweets are like funny, hilarious, like overheard in LA tweets. Yes, I don't care about that, but I've seen those other ones, and you know what? I've not said anything until today. I've wanted um, you to see you them. Thought, yeah, you obviously knew. I thought maybe you didn't think. <laughs> Why would I not know? It's a public platform and they were where we so follow each mean. other. I like I I've had to go to therapy because of your tweets. <laughs> you owe me wow. money, Ryan Mitchell. Wow. You owe me money. This is another white woman being victimized. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Alright, so um that said. What's going on at the show? Let's get to the nitty-gritty. Yes, uh, coming up. How to apologize properly, including if you're in politics. We could all use help with the art of the apology, and we have an expert on for that. Uh, plus, what one transgender activist wants us all to know during Black History Month, and actually 24-7. Stay tuned for that very powerful conversation later in the show. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. The impeachment trial, of course, is continuing. House managers presented arguments using never-before-seen security footage of the attack on the U.S. Capitol including Mike Pence being evacuated from the Senate chamber. And here's House Impeachment Manager Representative Joe Nagus. Of the lives, think for a moment, just a moment, of the lives lost that day, of the more than 140 wounded police officers, and ask yourself if as soon as this had started, President Trump had simply gone on to TV, just logged on to Twitter and said, stop the attack. If he had done so with even half as much force as he said, stop the steal. How many lives would we have saved? And even with all these powerful statements, images, videos, the Senate, it's being reported, is unlikely to achieve the two thirds vote required to convict Trump, according to many reports. Now, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki made it clear that the Biden administration will protect the rights of all Americans, including the trans community today. Here she's being asked, and this video is just so hard. It's so cringy to listen to, and you could see her just holding herself together. The patience this woman has as this Fox News reporter asks the most ridiculous question. I would just say that the president's belief is that uh, trans rights are human rights, and that's why he signed that executive order. Uh, And in terms of the determinations by universities and colleges, I would certainly defer to them. And it's nice to see an administration that knows what to say 
and knows how to protect all human rights. I mean, it's nice to see an administration who uh, says things in a very public forum like this. Yeah. Joe Biden has said it in his inauguration speech. Joe Biden said it in his, the night that he won the election. All these things um, we're seeing, and this is a huge thing and a huge statement for her to have said that, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the CDC has released a new report today confirming what many experts had already suggested. Wearing two masks prevents the spread of COVID-19 more than wearing just one mask. The CDC also reports that a tight mask fit is important and significantly protects the wearer from contracting COVID-19. I mean, I'm just waiting for like the next month where it's like three layers, four layers. Like soon we're just going to be just like our entire heads wrapped at this point. Uh, and that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Yeah, another actor has come forward to accuse director Joss Whedon of alleged abuse on set behavior. So it's time for your T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Charisma Carpenter, y'all remember her. Cordelia Chase from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And of course, it's been off Angel. Took to social media today to detail all of the alleged toxic and hostile behaviors that she experienced um, that Joss was like literally terrorizing her and others. Uh, here's a little bit of what she said. While he found his misconduct amusing, it only served to intensify my performance anxiety, disempower me, and alienate me from my peers. The disturbing incidents triggered a chronic physical condition from which I suffered. It was with a beating heavy heart that I say I coped in isolation and at times destructively. And so it's a very long essay. She t- went on to talk about the name calling, that happened in other ways he made the atmosphere very toxic she captioned it my truth across platforms and hashtag i stand with ray fisher and as we all know ray um actually took to twitter he's a black actor that alleged on twitter that whedon's behavior on set was gross abusive unprofessional and completely unacceptable um and yeah i mean jason momoa also backed uh, Ray Fisher's claims as well. So we'll see what happens here because Joss was, uh, Whedon still has Whedon, his yeah. job. You know, I, I spent one night with Joss Whedon. I was at an event. This is probably eight, almost a decade ago. And he was cool. He was, I mean, I didn't work with him, but he, you could see he liked to party and you could see um, he enjoyed having fun. And I could see possibly on set, he maybe would have a bit of an erratic behavior and including like there were no op- uh, boundaries like we set today, which should have been set a while ago. It's, it's crazy. But like I said, we'll see what happens as the story develops. That is your tea report. Coming up on the show, Twitter has officially banned Trump permanently and Facebook's latest move around political ads could change how social networks take on politics forever. The good and bad of these decisions next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Twitter will uphold its ban on former President Trump, even if he were to run for office again. That's according to the company's chief financial officer, Ned Siegel, who shared this with CNBC in an interview this morning. The way our policies work, when you're removed from the platform, you're removed from the platform, whether you're a commentator, you're a CFO, or you are a former or current public official. And so remember, our policies are designed to make sure that uh, people are not inciting violence. And if anybody does that, we have to remove them from the service and our policies don't allow people to come back. Back with us is Rebecca Howell, tech reporter for Recode. So, Rebecca, what do you think of this latest move from the CFO? I mean, I think it's really noteworthy because Trump obviously got a lot of momentum for his first uh, political run for president in 2016. And it's basically saying, if you try to run again, you will not have this platform there to support you. But I think it also has significance more broadly for other social media platforms, namely the two others that really matter are Facebook and YouTube. And it's sort of interesting to you know pay attention to how this might affect how those platforms re- respond to Donald Trump. Because if they all say no, it's going to be very hard for him to run a presidential campaign again with no access to the major social media platforms. 
Yeah, in that interview, Ned also spoke about, he says, our policies are designed to make people, uh, make sure that people are not inciting violence. So does that mean that the only way that people will be kind of held accountable if something happens that is violent, like a riot or something that we saw, or like, did the the definition kind of change there? Because it seems like now people will just be able to kind of do whatever as long as they're not inciting violence like we saw in the Capitol. I guess, what's that difference now? Yeah, I mean, I think when all these companies make statements like this is that they only they change their answers a lot. Um, And I think, you know, they're going to say what their rules are. And then depending on how much backlash they get, they're going to readjust their rules. Right. So we had Twitter had the whole controversy with the Hunter Biden New York Post story a while back. And then they kind of backtracked after being really committed to the rules. And then they were like, never mind, our rules were wrong. Right. And I think this happens very often where these companies will be like, well, the rules matter a lot. These are the rules and sort of act like they're mini constitutions. When in reality, these are for profit businesses that are just going to say, what gets them the least amount of backlash and the most amount of users at any given time. And right now there was a lot of really valid anger about what happened on Twitter and its relationship to, you know, the events at the Capitol. So, you know, he's going to say, he's going to say something like that, I think. Well, do you think they would possibly do similar things like banning other people like Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, uh, what's like, what's a line here? Right. Yeah. I mean, We'll, ha- we'll really have to see. They've definitely taken some other actions against her account in the past. And I think one thing that was interesting from the comments today were that the users on Twitter have gone up in the past year, right? And part of what they're saying is like, even though we did deplatform the president of the United States, our business is still doing pretty well. At least that seems like what they're trying to say. And so there's no reason why they might not deplatform another politician in the future. I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. But, you know, I, I think like what happened with Trump, it'll take something even more controversial to kind of for the final straw to happen. Yeah, again, it's not controversial anymore. It's not like we need Trump for the ratings or the views or the followers. Uh, again, we're talking to tech reporter Rebecca Howell about uh, Twitter saying they're officially permanently banning Trump. So are the conversations where we we have about like them, Twitter and these third party social media like companies like being more regulated, right? Because I do think there's still that fear that them having all of this power is still a little problematic. Do you think that's just going to go away or are people still going to kind of question that? I think we're going to have to see what the Biden administration does, because there has been a lot of excitement both from republicans and democrats to regulate social media companies albeit from very different perspectives what the democrats are mad about and the republicans are mad about are very different things but but now we have uh, a democrat in the white house um, and the democrats control congress as well so there could be legislation there it's not clear how much of a priority it would be for biden but in the meantime if you take the reverse of what's happened with facebook facebook has established a mini supreme court it's calling the oversight board that is now going to make the final decision over whether trump is permanently banned from facebook in the coming weeks or months right so even as the politicians are not giving us an answer on whether regulation is coming facebook says all right we'll regulate ourselves we literally created our own little mini government what's like, so like ba- like weird like oh i'm i'm making the rules so it's fine that's literally the entire issue here is that they're making the rules themselves right yeah it's this is a for-profit company that created its own little mini court to establish (laughs) whether or not it made the right decisions which on the one hand it's like okay like i I guess you're looking for some consistency but on the other hand if you're you know a member of the u.s population who's like we have a government that exists to regulate companies and you know make sure they're held, held accountable and held to certain standards doesn't seem completely kosher that the company is regulating itself in this manner. Rebecca Howell from Vox, thanks again for joining us. And Recode, tech reporter, by the way. Thanks for having me. Coming up on the show, uh, what has history taught us about the art of the public political apology and has it officially died? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Between Trump's actions, the Capitol insurrection, his reaction and non-apology, and what we're seeing from QAnon representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's making us wonder, is the political apology over or just for one side of the aisle? Well, joining us right now for this conversation is Edwin Batistella, who's a professor of linguistics at Southern Oregon University, also the author of Sorry About That, The Language of Public Apology. Thanks for being here for this really interesting topic. Yeah, it's great to be with you. 
So we can talk about apologies in general. We're focusing on the political apology. But why is an apology so hard, do you think? Well, it's, it's hard for any of us to apologize because one of the things we have to do is sort of mortify ourselves and say that we did something wrong. Um, mm. So that, that's a tough thing to do. And uh, you probably know from you know, your own life that when you, when you screw up, you, you, know, you have to sort of think twice before you shame yourself in front of other folks. Um, but people yeah. do get it right. Um, and some people are pretty good at it. Do you think culturally, um, are we too divisive for us to really kind of have a public apology, like a really good one that is like actually worth um, people being like, oh, I accept that? Yeah, today I think we're really kind of politically polarized in a way that lends itself to not having good apologies. You know, there were times in the past when there was like a sort of center to the political system and people could... Um, admit they made a mistake and move on. Um, nowadays, it's much tougher because apologies are tied up with your brand management as a politician or public figure. And that's tied up with your fundraising and your social media strategy. And you know, as soon as you admit you've done anything wrong or anything that might be morally suspect, um, you begin to lose your, your base, your followers, your, your funders. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Uh, but I guess, how has it changed over time? And is there anyone that's done it well? Well, I look and I see that, you know, the, the ratio of bad apologies to good apologies is probably, you know, nine bad for every one good one. Um, I saw a really good one a couple of years ago from Kirsten Gillibrand, the New York senator, when she was running for president. Um, people had sort of called her out on some of her early stances when she was a rural representative in upstate New York, kind of a conservative area. Um, and as she sort of moved to the Senate, she took more mainstream progressive policies and she had to go back and sort of talk about some of her earlier positions. And she basically said that she was wrong, her views had evolved and she no longer um, believed some of the things that she had been committed to when she was a basically a, a smaller town politician. So people can evolve. Um, yeah. But, but, but once I, you've got a following, it's tough. Yeah, but I do wonder, because I think people already look at politicians or politics mm -hmm. as a super evil space, and it's only kind of greedy and all these things. So I do think it is, does it, does it make it harder for people to even see the goodness when it comes to a politician? It, it does. I think, you know, people are always sort of inherently suspicious of politicians. And, you know, we're also we see so many bad apologies that, you know, we tend to be suspicious of apologies in general. So you really need to find some some good apologies and, and sort of see how that's done. And I mean, I find myself just sort of personally apologizing less, but trying to apologize better. Mm. Interesting. Again, we're talking to Edwin Batistella, who's a professor of linguistics at Southern Oregon University about the public political apology. So what are the tips to a great one? If you were talking to, I guess, a Republican or a Democrat right now, what would you say? If you had to get them in a room to do a workshop, what would you be sharing? And by the way, you are an expert because you've looked at these apologies over time. Like how many again, did you say? I, I looked at 500 and then I, I okay. picked the best hundred and put them in the book. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I would tell them is to not worry about, um, don't listen to their, their spin doctors because they're going to get um, advice about liability and um, the, the way this is going to affect their brand. You know, they, they really want to sort of listen to someone that's got some sort of moral credibility and think about what they've done and what relationships they want to repair over time. Um, so if they think about relationships, if they do apologize, they should say what they did wrong, right? Sort of name the harm that they did. Um, and you can't just say, oh, I apologize for whatever it is I did. Whereas, as one politician said years ago, I apologize for the conduct that was alleged that I did. Ugh. <laughs>
Okay, well, Edwin Batistella, this is so interesting. I would love to talk more about this, but alas, we have no more time. Again, Edwin is a professor of linguistics at Southern Oregon University. Check out his book, Sorry About That, The Language of Public Apology. Thanks again. It was great talking with you. Now coming up, what UK nurses are doing to be more inclusive to trans parents. We look at that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. UK health officials ordered nurses at two hospitals to substitute the term breast milk for human milk. And it's part of a first of its kind effort there to be more inclusive to trans and non-binary parents, which I think is great. It's so needed. The thing I'm wondering is I actually never thought uh, talking about a breast was a gender thing. I, I wonder if society has made it more like that, because when you look at like dictionary.com and medically, we all have breasts. It just has become a, a female thing in society. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, but I, I think it's more so because it takes time to get people to evolve, right? And I think when you yeah. slowly make these changes, you make the change and it's easier, right? You kind of start getting out of the bad habits of using, you know, gender gender terms, especially when there are trans and non-binary folks. And I, I, I want to applaud, especially mm -hmm. the healthcare system over there in the UK for doing that, because oftentimes we see healthcare really fail a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think the term human milk seems, uh, depending on where you go and what uh, gay club you reside in, uh, <laughs> it could mean totally different things. <laughs> but I think in this term, it, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I do, I do wonder about the, the, the original gendering of a, a of a word like breast. Cause I got breast. Yeah, well, that's why when you say a breast cancer, it's not just women that can get breast cancer. It's every type of person. We actually had a uh, talk about this on our show, actually. And I think that we have this assumption because we refer to women with breasts that and other genders don't get breast cancer. But that is just isn't true. That said, you need to know the context of something. You know, that is just as important just because the definition is one thing. If it doesn't align with the context, then it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. So if society deems something as a breast for a woman and you're saying to someone who's non-binary or trans, well, well, really, the definition of breast, it could be for anyone. But they're like, no, but that's associated with a woman. And that doesn't make me feel really included. And it feels like alienated and doesn't include me. Right. Then you say, OK, I get that. That's the context it's in. So we got to change that. And I respect that, by the way. It's so interesting because I'm looking at the hospital's original tweet, which actually comes from this place. It's called uh, Brighton and Sussex Maternity. I literally said, if I travel to the UK, I want to go to Brighton. There's just something so quaint about it. Like I follow mm -hmm. YouTubers who live there and I think it's just so, so cute. You see them like very excited about this change. And then you also see like people who are quote unquote feminist, but they take issues issues with this it's that that idea of like how feminism isn't intersectional and i think we we talk about that all the time on the show when we're bringing up people like turfs and it's just like this i think there's a difference in like what you're doing and you're asking a like actually like asking questions about the originality of like where that term started to become a gender term versus mm -hmm. it you're like you know, someone online being so offended that it's like attacking their womanhood or something, right? And I think that is what people can learn from this type of conversation where you can Hopefully. be inquisitive, right? But still mind your own business and be like, yeah, this if someone needs that to solidify their and affirm their experience, yes. there you go. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't hurt me, right? And we all have such individual experiences of what even being a female is, you being a man or being anyone. Yeah. So this idea that we have to see that in the same way is just ridiculous. We need more compassion. We need to stop being so sacred with all these things. If someone wants something that makes them feel better, go at it. They deserve their best life. I'll live my own and be happy in my own way too. Let's just like help each other out here. I man. agree. Now, coming up on the show, Iowa Republicans want to ban teachers from talking about transgender people. I mean, for real. More details on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, we've got a Sprouts guru joining us to talk about how you can make your own food without a garden. It's very easy. Plus, at 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern, what Austin is doing to house their homeless and how that solution could be implemented in other cities, too. 
But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour right now. As Democrats continue to make their arguments at the impeachment trial for former President Trump, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett uh, is saying a lot, actually, a bunch of her moments are going viral on social media, including one where she talks about uh, Pence and how his life was in danger. He was receiving death threats, a possible assassination. But also she notes that there was a permit to march from the ellipse to the Capitol that was not authorized for the January 6th rally until Trump and his team got involved in the planning, which many are pointing to evidence of his responsibility for the insurrection. Women for America First had initially planned for the rally goers to remain at the ellipse until the counting of the state electoral slates froze was completed, just like they had remained at Freedom Plaza after the second million MAGA march. In fact, the permit stated in no uncertain terms that the march from the ellipse was not permitted. It was not until after President Trump and his team became involved in the planning that the march from the ellipse to the Capitol came about in direct contravention of the original permit. And moving on from the impeachment trial, Republicans in the state of Iowa are trying to ban schools from teaching about gender identity. A bill would update elementary school curriculum standards in the state to say, quote, the curriculum provided to a student in accordance with this subsection shall not include instruction relating to gender identity. And they also say that if teachers do intend to discuss gender identity in school, they'll need to get written permission from all the students' parents first. That was introduced by eight Republican state lawmakers. It does not block schools from using the concept of gender at all. It requires that teachers not discuss the idea that there is gender-related identity of a person, regardless of the person's assigned sex at birth. So it's a lot. Teachers wouldn't be able to mention that transgender people exist even, even if there is a transgender student in the classroom. So this is obviously a huge issue that will be fought, but it is being introduced right now in Iowa. Uh, so that was what's trading this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Yeah, so there's another scam out there, and this time it's kind of involving Bruno Mars. It's time for your tea report those pop culture stories trending right now. So there is a lady in Houston who is 63, and she told cops that she made an IG account back in 2018 and connected with someone claiming to be Bruno Mars. Um, she says the person developed an online relationship with her and eventually, of course, asked for cash. Now, guess how much cash she gave them? Oh, God. I mean, no, it's a lie. It's kind of really sad at this point. Uh, she says she cut a couple of checks and put them in the mail as instructed, one for $10,000 and another for $90,000 for a grand total whopping $100,000 out of the hole. Police found the culprits uh, because they traced the money into their bank accounts, of course. Mm-hmm. According to the legal documents, uh, two cashier's checks were made out to Shy's Autos at the, um, I, I guess, because that's what the fake Bruno wanted to cover tour expenses. Um, that's what he told the woman anyway. Uh, she says he also told her he was leaving the tour to come be with her. I mean, yeah, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not really sure who I should feel bad for at this moment. I mean, it's obvious Bruno Mars would not need money. So it's like, yeah, I feel so bad. This person was so disillusioned to think that this was Bruno Mars, unfortunately. And why that, would Bruno Mars, yeah. no shame, why would Bruno Mars date a 63-year-old? That is not fair. I you mean, know, we don't want to be ageist. I, well, I kind of have to be because he's a, a, a super big, like, pop star low-key. And he has probably, he's probably dating a woman already who is not a 63. And no shade. No shade. And if Houston asking for $100,000, what would Bruno Mars need help with tour expenses for? Yeah, that's just weird. That's the biggest red flag to me. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's your tea report. But really quick, you enter for your chance to win your way into an exclusive pay-per-view concert special with Max and his Color Vision Deluxe Experience. Head over to WeirdChannelQ.com for your chance to win a pair of passes plus a VIP meet and greet with Max. Right now, go check it out right now. That's your tea report. Okay, well, coming up on the show right now, when you think of sprouts, you might think of salad toppings, but our next guest is a sprouts guru who say uh, sprouts can change your life and your health. More on why next. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Doug Evans could be called the Sprout Wizard. He's a longtime vegan and author of the book, The Sprout Book, Tap into the Power of the World's Most Nutritious Food. He's basically obsessed with sprouts, and he's here to tell us why and how they could help us. Doug Evans, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Shira. I'm so excited to be here. I feel the enthusiasm. I mean, we do. And and we're not (laughs) talking about the grocery store, people. This is actual things that come from the ground. I've never heard of a sprout. I don't even know what that is. Okay. So so basically, I, I lived in the city my whole life. Gardening wasn't an option. Farming wasn't an option. I moved to the Mojave Desert three years ago, mm-hmm. and that was the desert. And then I realized it was a double desert because it was a food desert. There was no Whole Foods, no organic restaurants. The nearest vegan restaurant was hours away. So I had to ask myself, how am I going to eat? Because I didn't mm. want to be in the car and I didn't want to eat junk. Mm. So uh, literally something flashed into my eyes, sprouts. So I ordered some sprouting seeds, right? I ordered some alfalfa seeds and some mung bean seeds. And these are the two most popular sprouts, right? The alfalfa seeds was made famous in the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall. And the mung beans you'll see in Thai restaurants and Asian cuisine. And that was sprouting. What I realized was that every seed can sprout and turn into mature fruits and vegetables. So everything begins with a sprout. But over history from the beginning of time, um, people had a lot of land. They had a lot of water. So this one little broccoli seed would turn into a three-pound broccoli plant, and mm-hmm. people would eat that, and it would take, you know, say, three months. So all fruits and vegetables take weeks or months or years to grow. I was hungry now. What could I eat now? And it turns out sprouts can grow in days, not weeks or months. This is fascinating because I, I think this is something that a lot of people deal with. And we talk about uh, the vegan lifestyle and how it's not accessible because right. people, many people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, black and brown communities are living literally in food deserts. They want to eat healthy. They would love to garden. They, like It just doesn't make sense. They don't have the, the room or the space. They don't have a backyard. Right. Well, that was the, that was the interesting thing that I looked at sprouts as the equalizer because if you were to go buy organic greens in the organic health food store, it could cost over a dollar an ounce. So a little pack of organic greens or sprouts in the market could cost three or five dollars. But if you were to take the sprouts and grow them on your own, it costs pennies a serving, literally pennies a serving. And since I had never gardened or farmed anything in my life, I was like, will I be able to do this? And it turns out You can grow the sprouts using any sort of vessel, a glass, a jar, a bowl, a a colander or a strainer. And these seeds, sprouting seeds, are complete living organisms in a dormant state. And if you add some water to them, they like wake up, snap into action, and they want to grow and they want to grow into edible sprouts that you can eat on day three, day four, day five. And I wrote the book because within 30 days of of really digging into sprouts, I realized that you can grow the sprouts without soil, without sunshine, with a mason jar and water. um, And I was growing 50% of my calories in one cubic foot for pennies a serving and I was the happiest camper. Again, we're talking to Sprout experts uh, and author Doug Evans right now. I mean, I really want someone to love me as much as you love Sprouts. It's very easy. Uh, you can buy Sprouts easily wherever you are online, order them to your home. Uh, but you could also check out the book, The Sprout Book, Tap into the Power of the World's Most Nutritious Food. Doug Evans, this has been a very unique se- segment we've never done on the show. So thank you so much for being here for this. And my pleasure. Every day I'm posting on my Instagram at Doug Evans information about sprouting. 
I answer almost every question. And I'm going to leave you with this, Shira. Sprouts are good for food. Sprouts are good for vitamins. I think any doctor or nutritionist or dietitian will say, eat your vitamins. And three, sprouts are medicine. More than 2,000 papers published on the research power of sprouts for dealing with both acute and chronic illnesses. Shira, I love you. Ryan, I love you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Uh, Coming up next, transgender activist and change agent for LGBTQ plus rights, Kendall Stevens joins us for a very powerful conversation. Don't go in. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. In August 2020, transgender activist Kendall Stevens was attacked in her Philadelphia home by a transphobic mob. The incident made headlines and she's had the courage to share her story in order to support other black trans women. She joins us right now. Thank you so much for being here uh, and for everything that you are sharing. Uh, The piece that we saw in Huffington Post was so powerful. So it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. And and how has your activism changed since that moment? Why has it been so important to share your own story? Uh, It's important to share my story because people need to know the realities um, of what was happening in the transgender community. You know, um, I say all the time that um, we are your neighbors. Um, We pray in your synagogues and your churches, you know, with you on the highway, uh, driving and in the grocery store and the checkout line with you. We are part of your community. Rather, if people want to um, admit to that fact or not. And um, people barge into my home and, and beat me in front of my uh, godchildren. Um, they didn't realize that those children now are traumatized. You know, one is so traumatized that she has living nightmares. It needs um, deep therapy. And um, but of course, now I'm also traumatized. Yeah. You know, so there's that, you know, and when you're home, your safe space, is no longer that it really speaks to the American people in a, in a way that where they can frame now the transgender experience um, and, and relate that to changes coming, you know, changes that, that are needed, you know, because I have people who said to me um, since my attack, I never even considered the transgender experience. It's not part of my life, you know, it doesn't um, affect me in any kind of way. But when I saw, you know, what I, what I, what I saw with you and your attack, it moved me. It, it moved me to, to advocate for you. You know, it moved me because I couldn't imagine someone bursting into my home. And that's what ended up happening. And of course, you know, initially the police were not very supportive, you know, so I was uh, re-traumatized, you know. So what's, what has happened, what has changed with my advocacy work is that I've used my heroin Odell to um, promote education mm. um, about what exactly is happening and are in the trans community and using my story to shed light on our plight. You know, where does that empathy come from, right? Because after hearing, seeing headline after headline of a black trans woman dying, after knowing one personally and one of your Philadelphia sisters, Dominique Remy Fills, um, it just feels like for me and how I would internalize that is be like, I'm tired of explaining and fighting for people to understand my uh, humanity. So I guess what continues to give you that empathy to, to see people um, enough that you want to continue to educate? This is my charge. Um, we don't have many people who are trans identified who have the strength as a dealing with myriad traumas and abuses to be able to stand speak up and stand up um, because they're just too afraid. You know, they don't want to expose themselves to the public. And, you know, I'm, my, my life is actually in danger as we speak. You know, my accuser just got bailed out. Um, she knows where I live. Um, you know, so even today I was, uh, you know, plowing some snow and looking over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Now, who do you know has to do that? Who do you know today? Shovel snow in front of their properties and had to look over their shoulder, fearing that they may get killed, fearing that they may get assaulted. But see, that's my reality. And I don't want that to be a reality for anyone else. So it's my charge, it's my calling to make sure that I break down these barriers of oppression in my uh, community because I want those uh, trans people coming up um, behind me to be able to live in a world devoid of all of the rife injustices that I have to deal with, that my community has to deal with as trans people, they will have a different existence than what 
um, that, that what I'm experiencing, that what we're experiencing right now, but that takes um, a lot of bravery, you know, because um, we are under siege. The transgender population is currently under siege and we need all hands on deck, all capable hands, all willing hands, all able hands. And it's my charge and my resilience tells me to keep on fighting. And, and my empathy comes from people inserting them, their, their, themselves in my life in very critical times in my life where I wanted to give up, where I wanted to throw in the towel. There was always a protective factor, um, a teacher, a professor, um, a faith um, a member, a community member, you know, um, sometimes a stranger, you know, helping mm -hmm. me at critical points in my life. So even though I was placed on a trajectory of risk, they veered me right back to uh, one of uh, safety where I was able to kind of recalibrate because as trans people, we are constantly hyper vigilant looking yeah. behind our shoulders because even in daylight, every corner for us is a dark corner. Well, Kendall Stevens, you're just a force to be reckoned with. We're going to continue having you on right after this because we want to talk about what we can all do to create some change right now around what is happening that is next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Transgender activist and change agent for LGBTQ plus rights, Kendall Stevens joins us again. Also, just a reminder, she's amazing. She's on the board of directors also at the William Way LGBT Community Center in Philadelphia. Thanks again for being here, for sharing all of you. You're an inspiration to say the least. Uh, we were talking about what is going on, of course, with the transgender community, trans women of color, and you know the American Medical Association, and you talked about this in your Huffington Post piece, in 2019 deemed the fatal violence against transgender women an epidemic. Puerto Rico issued a state of emergency after an increase in the assault and murders of trans women. How can we take action around this right now so this doesn't keep happening? First and foremost, it's very important that um, we have allies, supporters who know our struggle and are able to access spaces that we have been uninvited to. Um, we don't have power or privilege, um, especially as Black trans people. Whatever power or you know that we that we get is uh, borrowed. You know, um, someone has lent that to us and then we're able to have our voices amplified in some way. You know, so our um, allies are our essential workers, so to speak. Um, and I would say that they do, first of all, as an ally, they want to break down those barriers that keep us from communicating with each other. You know, for those who may be ignorant or, or biased um, towards trans people, who would not normally have a conversation with us, they become our conduits. Um, I would say like an intercommunal um, uh, conduit where they're able to bridge those communications uh, between us and other people because you cannot heal what you cannot reveal. And people have a lot of untrue narratives about trans people that quite frankly are very harmful and dangerous yeah. that, that, that are leading to violence. You know, so um, they're able to kind of ease um, those conversations. And I think once we have these healing conversations, then we can start to uh, move on and maybe accept one another's differences. Because at the end of the day, besides the fact that I I'm trans, um, I know for a fact that I have much more in commonality with people than I do in dissimilarity. And once we kind of understand that, we were, we're going to realize that why did why were we so up in arms over a personal identifier or two that really just makes this person a unique individual? It should be something that should be fearing. It should be something that should be embracing and understanding. So, but that only comes from unteaching uh, negative and toxic behavior, um, unteaching untrue stereotypes and type typecasts. We have to do it. And then what we do is we help people learn the, the authentic truths of who we are. And that's how yeah. you want. I, I think that's so beautiful. And I, I want to wrap this up with you talking specifically to the black trans folks and queer folks out there, right? The people who want to be so involved and fight for their sisters and their brothers and their non-binary uh, siblings. If they don't, if they don't feel like they can be an activist or an advocate, how can you encourage them to feel comfortable doing what they do in the best way that they know how? First of all, we can advocate and very different ways, myriad ways, and it can be very subtle. 
you know, it can be subtle enough as you putting on a she, her button, you know, or a trans is beautiful mask, you know, while you're walking out um, and, and just being visible. We have to understand that the reason why this has been happening, because first of all, um, even though the HRC, the human rights campaign have been tracking uh, fatal uh, violence towards the trans community since 2000 and I believe 13, this has been happening for a very long time, uh, you know, for, for decades. It's just now gaining a bit of um, notoriety, if you will. So we've already been used to um, coming up missing um, and then ending up dead um, and attacked uh, with impunity. So I tell people, be visible and you're gonna find your strength from other people who are trans and gender non-conforming, also being brave in their truths. You have to be brave in it. And it takes sometimes you looking at other people who are being brave because you see someone living authentically, unapologetically, that somehow emboldens you, gives you permission to want to live in yours as well. Well, you are definitely doing that. And it was beautiful to have you on today. Uh, you inspire all of us. So thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate that, it. That was Kendall Stevens, transgender activist and change agent for LGBTQ plus rights based out of Philadelphia. Now, coming up next, there are warnings of romance scams during the pandemic ahead of Valentine's Day. What to look out for? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, Austin's solution for the homeless crisis that might be the future solution for other cities. Plus, Twitter has officially banned Trump. So what happens if social networks limit politics? And what's the line there? Because this could get messy. That's coming up on this hour. Let's go there. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. The NBA has announced that all of its teams will play the national anthem before games in keeping with longstanding league policy. Uh, the statement appears to be a direct response to Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, who, by the way, has been on the show before. Check out that interview on our podcast on uh, Radio.com and where podcasts are available. Just search Let's Go There if you're wondering. He basically told his team to stop playing the song before games. He added this in a statement. We respect and always have respected the passion people have for the anthem in our country. But we also loudly hear the voices of those who feel that the anthem does not represent them. We feel that their voices need to be respected and heard because they have not been. I mean, that's uh, a great Did, Have people point, complained right? about that? What, the anthem? Yeah, have people complained about that? I think on every, all sports, kind of, it's something that's brought up now. I thought it was more so just take, like, actually, like, silently, like, peacefully protest. I don't think, has anyone ever said they had an issue with the national anthem? I know, I mean, the national anthem is problematic, but has anyone ever actually said, oh, like, stop playing it? Well, uh, I think it might have been brought up enough so that that Mark wasn't playing it at the games, like their preseason games. And uh, but because of this whole thing and the NBA making a statement, Mark is telling reporters, the New York Times, Mark Stein, that we are good with it, meaning they're good with the NBA's directive on it. The Mavericks are expected to play the anthem prior to their game against the Atlanta Hawks today, actually. So there you go. But I appreciate Mark for showing up and for making a statement. Um, what? It honestly the seems stupid. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't I don't really understand what this is supposed to be doing. People just like the, uh, making a statement, being silent or um, going on your knee. Similarly, I think people are looking at it like, why are we even playing it before a game? Like, what's the point? Oh, I, I didn't know that that conversation was being had. I think people would actually prefer you to like, well, I don't know do actual things, the national anthem isn't going to stop racism or it's just obviously, like <laughs> but it's like, I think all these things are being brought up to make people feel seen and heard, including in the game, you know, players uh, are obviously saying I think something. That is a, I think that is up to interpretation. It's true. Let's talk about this later offline, uh, but let's continue because Valentine's day is here and this is, sucks sucky you might be scammed so watch out because last year scammers took in a record amount of cash and romance scams of course because if we fall in love we will do 
anything, it seems, as you saw with the Bruno Mars story last hour on the T-Report. So according to the FTC, consumers lost more than $300 million to romance scams in 2020, a 50% increase from the previous year because we were so darn lonely and we just wanted love in all the wrong places. And now during the pandemic ahead of Valentine's Day, the FTC is warning about scammers creating fake profiles and taking advantage of the pandemic and the economic crisis. The biggest age group that scammers have targeted, not the 63-year-olds, as we saw with Bruno Mars, 20 to 29-year-olds. Isn't that interesting? That's your age group. To avoid falling victim to this romance scam, they are saying to look out for these things. Uh, scammers make excuses to not meet in person. So that might be a thing. It's like catfish. Never send money to anyone, that, even if you're falling in love with them. It's a red flag. Do a reverse image search of the person's profile photos to see if it's really them. Another thing to check out, whether it's a romance scam or a catfish. And finally, uh, a new penal code in Angola came into force today, decriminalizing same-sex conduct and prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. Uh, they had basically previously characterized homosexuality as vices against nature. And uh, that was scrapped in January 2019. But basically, same-sex relationships are now legal in Angola. So congrats, Angola, for catching up with the times and being good to people. Angola, by the way, is a Southern African nation. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? We got an early yes, Queens, for the Tea Report. Let's jump right in to those pop culture stories trending right now. Pedro Pascal, a.k.a. The Mandalorian, if you watch that on Disney+, Plus, uh, his sister came out as trans, and he's sending her all the love. Her name is Lux Pascal. Um, she broke the news on the cover of a Chilean magazine called Ya. Yeah. Uh, Pascal shared the, co- uh, shared the cover of the magazine on Instagram along with a beautiful message in Spanish. And here's what the translation is. My sister, my heart are Lux. So congrats to Pascal and Lux's family for being so supportive and a big yes queen to Lux for embracing her new journey. Um, but before we wrap up T Report, I got to tell you about this giveaway we're doing. We have your chance to win your way into an exclusive pay-per-view concert special with Max and his Color Vision Deluxe Experience on Saturday, February 27th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Head over to Weird Channel Q and, and enter for your chance to win a pair of passes plus a meet and greet situation with Max. That's your T Report. More of that on WeirdChannelQ.com. Well, next up on the show, Austin's solution to end homelessness could be a case study for other cities. More on that next with Councilwoman Vanessa Fuentes. Austin, Texas has been taking steps to end its homeless and housing crisis. So could it be an example for other cities? Well, Austin Councilwoman Vanessa Fuentes joins us right now to talk about this. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, we've been following this story and we thought it was actually really interesting as we even look at places like where we live in Los Angeles, where it's such an issue. We're really in an epidemic right now. So I guess uh, in Austin, how bad is it and how bad has it gotten? Well, definitely the pandemic has just magnified the inequality that we have here in Austin. You know, oftentimes people think of Austin, they think of all the good things that make our our city so wonderful. But Austin is one of the most segregated cities in the country, both economically, racially, and also um, based on our health as well, which is why I ran for council was to address the health disparities. And so what we've seen um, during the pandemic is that uh, our homelessness has has intensified. And certainly, you know, Austinites who are most at risk and most vulnerable have, have borne the brunt of the pandemic. What's the difference? Because I think this is one amazing what you all are doing, especially um, getting these hotels to house, you know, unhoused people. Um, but what's the difference here between a regular homeless shelter and this situation? Can you make that clear? Well, first, I should back up and say a little bit. In 2018, our community passed the largest affordable housing bond ever in our city's history. It was over $250 million that we allocated as a city to make Austin more affordable. And those funds were crucial in getting us the, the money needed to buy hotels. And so in 2018, we passed the largest affordable housing bond. In 2019, we decriminalized homelessness, which is key in truly addressing and getting people um, out of the cycle of criminal justice. And then three, uh, and then this in 2020, we responded 
uh, to COVID uh, and shifted our response and operations to standing up uh, different hotels. And part of our next steps and part of our strategy is um, purchasing hotels to provide permanent supportive housing. And that's key because with permanent supportive housing, it's just, it's not just about giving a roof over your head. It's about providing those wraparound services. So job aid, mental health services, direct healthcare services, resources that are needed to ensure stability and long-term support. Um, and so uh, that's what makes these hotel uh, purchases and conversions into what will be ev- eventually apartment homes so unique and so needed. And it's definitely a tool that's going to help Austin help our our. Uh, neighbors who are unhoused. Yeah. Again, we're talking to Austin Councilwoman Vanessa Fuentes. Uh, but is this something that other cities can be looking to do as they're looking to solve the housing and homeless crisis? Absolutely. It is a proven strategy that works. Um, but it's but also what I do want to highlight, it is one strategy and certainly one tool. And you need, when you are looking at how to prevent and reduce homelessness, you have to be able to pull different multiple levers simultaneously. Uh, So this is one strategy and it is an effective strategy. And we've seen other cities like Houston, uh, San Diego have also employed this type of um, strategy. So I do wonder, especially this sounds like it could give so many families the tools to kind of be rehabilitated right into everyday life. But when it comes to the actual conversations about raising the minimum wage, uh, you know, price, is that something that we really need to think of when it comes to long term help instead of this short term kind of solution? Absolutely. Long term stability. We need to be thinking about you know, having access to jobs that pay a living wage, right? It's minimum wage, it's living wage. Um, Looking at making housing more affordable, um, ensuring that, you know, folks have access to healthcare. Um, All of that goes into a just and moral society. Vanessa, I want to know, I guess, uh, from here, how easy or hard was it for this to get passed? Because I feel like a lot of cities, this presents a lot of hurdles because it, it requires a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. That money piece is key. And so when I referenced the affordable housing bond that we passed, that was key in helping us uh, bring about this conversation. But it was a conversation that as a community, we're committed to having. But what actually is unique about this proposal is that we are act- our Austin decided to reimagine public safety. So mm. we are using dollars that are dedicated to policing and we're reinvesting those dollars to do the maintenance and operations of the hotel. Uh, so it's a unique way, a transformative way of delivering public safety and meeting the needs of our community. And uh, But it is it is politically messy, right? I mean, certainly uh, there are um, neighborhoods that are around the hotel that come out and support, um, that come out in opposition, excuse me, um, yeah. have to have, you have to take the time to have those conversations and to really walk through the community about how this is a benefit and will will help. Yeah. Well, that was Vanessa Fuentes, Austin Councilwoman. Thank you so much for being here for everything you're doing. It's really needed. Thank you so much for having me. Y'all have a good day. You do. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. So this is a video that is being shared everywhere, and I wanted to include it because it just makes you feel good when you see it. It's hilarious. Uh, It's basically uh, this attorney who showed up on his Zoom to this courtroom hearing, and he basically didn't realize that he had a cat filter on. So you hear this this guy, this attorney, just trying to, you know, talk to the judge, and he just looks like a cat. And it just continues, and it's so funny. Here's a clip. Mr. Potton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take We're trying look. to, we're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's... I'm here live. That's not. I'm not a cat. I can. I can see that. Um, I think if you click the up arrow next to the. So I mean, you got to have a laugh watching that, Ryan. If if this didn't make you laugh, you don't think this is cute? I don't know what to say about you, Ryan. You might be evil. Um, 
I mean, did you really need that to prove that I was evil or... But um, no, I think it was cute. I saw it this morning. It was one of the first things that I saw this morning when I opened up Twitter and saw that it was just yet another person who could not figure out Zoom. Uh, but that I think this is a lesson. If you have a child who plays on Zoom, maybe you should check how to turn off the Zoom filters before because they will get you. They will get you. But or just do a practice run before if you know it's going to be a big deal, like you're showing up uh, for a court case in front of a judge. Specifically. Yeah, or you're the judge. It was yeah. the judge. Uh, no, with other lawyers, no. It wasn't the judge? I thought no, it was the judge. No, it wasn't the judge. It was, oh, no, see, it was I saw, I saw a tweet from a judge who talked Fake about Fake news. Yeah. Anyway. I'm going to find it. I think it was. Or you have a presentation, a big meeting with someone. You might want to go in to do a practice run to make sure all the filters and everything works before you end up going viral. Unless that is your goal. And then, hey, good, good on you. Entertain the world. Uh, and that does it for our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now, coming up on tomorrow's show, of course, we got more What's Trending uh, in the news always. But we're also going to be uh, getting into this ex-QAnon believer who's sharing how we should all approach the conspiracy movement. So that should be interesting. And the lonely state of getting over someone you never dated. We're here to help. That's on tomorrow's show, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live on Channel Q. And if you miss any of our shows or interviews, don't you worry because we post everything as a podcast. So just go to the radio.com app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Now stick around for Loveline where Dr. Chris is covering kissing facts and myths. Ooh, that's next. All right. Bye, y'all.